So parts four and five now, we're just going to kind of try to talk about what does it mean for individually, for us as believers, for us as a church here, practically to host the presence. And there are two ways, in my thinking, two realities of God's presence. And maybe I'm oversimplifying this, and I have a tendency to do that. You know, but there tends to be two realities, and one of those we're going to talk about next week, and that's the manifest presence of God. That's the expressed presence of God. That's when God shows up in power, God does signs and wonders, or God moves sort of in these bigger ways that sort of are, you know, expressed visibly um, outwardly. We're going to talk about that next week. So that's one, is the manifest or the expressed presence um, but the one we're talking about today, though, is the abiding presence or the resting presence that's on each one of us. And Chuck was tapping into this a little bit. You know, the Holy Spirit obviously knows what he's doing this whole entire morning, bringing all this together, the abiding presence. So in the manifest presence, though, next week we're talking about in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would sort of come on occasion on certain people for a certain task to accomplish, you know, like, like the judges, like Gideon or, or, or Samson. The Bible says that the, literally the Spirit came upon them. And all of a sudden they were endued with power to do incredible things. But inevitably the Spirit would leave and they would sort of go back to being their normal, sort of like, you know, the Incredible Hulk. You know, when he gets really mad, he turns green and really big, right? Yes, I just compared the ancient judges to <laughs> the Incredible Hulk. Um, the abiding presence, though, uh, is, is, is that's sort of the root of it. That's, that really is the full promise of what, of, of what Jesus was, was talking about. The manifest presence, they've seen it. It still continues, even in Acts, it still continues today. But the abiding presence, man, that's the foundation. That's everything. You know, and even, even Old Testament still hints about that. You know, David, David writes a psalm. He says, where, where can I go from your presence? Where can I hide from your love? If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and I fly across the sea, even there your hand will, will hold me. And you're, even there, uh, forget the rest of it. You have to look it up. <laughs> it's there. So the abiding or the resting presence of God. And, and if you know the name Bill Johnson, the pastor of, of um, what's that little church out in Redding called? Bethel, that's it. Little church plant. He says this, he says, the Holy Spirit is in me for my sake, but it comes upon me for yours. I, I, I had to think about that for a minute. I was like, oh, what? what does that mean? The Holy Spirit is in me for my sake. That's the abiding presence. That's the constant nearness of God. That's the communion of God. That's the, the sanctifying power of God that comes in. But it also, also the Holy Spirit is upon me. That's manifest power for your sake. In other words, he's moving upon me so that I can sort of exercise the gifts that God's given me to build you up and to encourage you and, and, and to, you know, for, to, to, be, um, to change circumstances around me. I thought, that's, that's a good foundation. That's straight, up, that's, that's, that's straight up true. So we're looking at the abiding, resting presence of God. Let's go to John 14. John 14, beginning in verse 15. It's up behind us on the screen. We're going to read this. Jesus is, these, these, are, these are the moments before he is to be crucified. He's with his disciples. They have been sharing the Passover meal together. 
and he's sort of unloading as much as he can into their hearts because he knows the hour is about to come for him to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be tried, to be flogged, to be crucified. His time with them as a teacher and discipler is, is limited. So he is just unpacking as much of this intense sort of really deep theology as he can. John, out of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is the one who uniquely sort of brings a lot of this uh, riches of Jesus' teaching to light. The other Gospels don't mention these things that John does. But let's read this together. John 14, beginning in verse 15. He says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Maybe you have a translation that says something like counselor, or the old King James called it comforter. The Greek word is paraclete. It sort of wraps up all of those things. It's just basically somebody who comes alongside to be my right hand, to be my support, to be my strength. So counselor, comforter, para, you know, advocate, whatever it is. He says that he will, he will give you another advocate. Well, who's the first advocate? He was, exactly right. Yeah, Jesus is saying, look, I've been here. I've been a comforter to you. I've been encouraging you. I've been advocating for you. When I go, though, I want to ask the Father. The Father's going to give you another one besides me. He says this, and he will be with you forever. I'm about to go, says Jesus. He's going to stay with you forever. The Spirit, capital S, of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Oh, that's awesome. Come on. You know, it is. I know, right? I will. And he says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I think that's all I'm going to read. What did I tell you? Oh, that's, that's, that's it for now. Okay. So, oh, through 27. No, no, no. You're right. I'm sorry, Emma. You're right. I put it up there. She's shaking her head like, oh, my word. <laughs> through 27. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, by the way, um, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Going up one more, M. There you go. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Make our abode with them. We're going we're gonna to set up camp. We're going to stay right where they are. We're going to hang pictures on the wall, you know. We're going to move our furniture in. We're going to make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. Go on to verse, 20, verse 26. But the advocate, one more up, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, oh, we're just scratching the surface to understand, Lord, what the depths of what you promised. Jesus, what you promised. Open our ears, our minds, and our hearts 
not only to understand it, but to live in this reality. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus sort of unpacks this person of the Holy Spirit. He promises this is what the Spirit is going to do. This is why he's coming. He's going to be the bridge between you guys, disciples, and the Father and I. And everything that the Father and I share together, you now have a lifeline. You now have access to that. Let me give you some, 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 some reasons why. Why is the Holy Spirit, why, why the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit? Let me give you six of those. And then what, kind of one more major point at the end, and that, that's it, all right? So why is he here? Why is the, the Spirit abiding in us? First one is this, to comfort and encourage. We just read this up here. John says this, to comfort and encourage. And I want you to think through these things. Have they been a reality in your life? Have they been a reality in the last week? Have they been a reality maybe this morning? Think about this. Have I felt comforted and encouraged by something outside of my own world? Not by my wife, not by my husband, not by the song on K-Love, not by all these things. Have I ever just sort of felt supernaturally comforted and encouraged when I'm going through something? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who's ministering to us. The second one is this. Why is he there to guarantee our sonship? You notice I didn't say to guarantee our um, sonship or daughtership. I didn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that. And he's not sexist. On the, op the opposite is true, actually. Jesus and the early church were, were, were more inclusive than anyone else in the ancient world. They were more sort of women's lib and sort of elevating inequality than anyone else in the ancient world. Yet Paul talks about it, about, uh, about sonship. And let me read it. In, in Romans 8, 15 says this. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God's And there's a whole other teaching on what that means to be adopted as a son. But really, what, what it means, it's sort of a reference to the, to the ancient Roman uh, adoption law where the sons were the ones who could receive the full privileges of inheritance. And Paul is saying, you've been adopted with the full privilege of inheritance. You've been adopted as if you are a son. Obviously, daughters are adopted as sons too. Right? You know, so, and the Spirit is given to guarantee that. We can look in our heart, and, and, and there's a seal. There's a sort of a deposit made into our hearts that promises, I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. I have a spirit of sonship. The, 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 the spirit of the Father is deposited into my heart and locked in here. And I have a guarantee of that. He guarantees our sonship. Why else is he here? He also gives us wisdom and revelation. And we've seen a little bit of that this morning, just sort of when, when, you know, when, when Sasha comes up and she sensed God is saying something. And many, um, some of you have this, this gift, of, um, gift of words of knowledge or these, these sort of prophetic words. The Spirit is the one who does that. The Spirit is the one who gives wisdom and revelation. Uh, Jesus says this. He says in, in chapter 16 of John, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. So we have like this sort of access into a wisdom that's not our own, a revelation of things that are not our own. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Whenever you, and you know, we, we laugh about this as parents, you know, we call them momdar or something like that. Like parents sort of intuitively know when their kids are, you know, when something is up. You know, and Meg and I talk about that. We, we believe that's the Spirit of God who's giving us a little bit of a heads up that we wouldn't ordinarily have about a situation. Every believer has access to this. Every believer has the same spirit where we can operate with a higher level of wisdom and a higher revelation that we don't have ordinarily. So that's the third thing. The fourth is this, to convict and correct. Didn't say condemn. Condemnation's not it. Condemnation is sort of the guilt without any hope whatsoever. That's not of the spirit. That's not of Jesus. Jesus convicts. Jesus says, hey, look, let me put my thumb on you easily. You're doing some things wrong. You know, you're, you're, you're messing up. You're stepping over the line. You're, you're acting out of your own flesh. You're being selfish or whatever else. And Jesus sort of leads me out, leads us out, says, here's the way. Come on, here's what you need to do. That's conviction. That's correcting. John 16 says, nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he does that. Verse 8 says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a time in, early in my, in, in my Christian walk, you know, when, when evangelism was, I was really trying to do evangelism. I was trying to witness, you know, witness on the street and share my faith and talk to people. And I, I, I kind of began to notice that it was, I felt at that time, it's up to me to try to convince people of their wrong. It's up to me to sort of like, you know, persuade them that all the terrible things that they're doing, you know, as if somehow I could make their heart feel guilt. And I realized, like, I can't do this. I, can't, I, don't, I don't have the capacity to do that. I can't make anybody feel any kind of conviction whatsoever. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. And, if you, and, and as you begin to talk to, if you talk to, you know, to people who, who have been converted, who have given their lives over, and you'd ask them sort of about the past and how that happened, and, you know, inevitably many of them talk about sort of this, this inner sense that something is not right. Even before maybe somebody's presented the gospel message they're aware something is not right with how I'm living my life. Something is broken with my moral compass. That's the Holy Spirit who does that. Holy Spirit is the one who puts his thumb on people and says there's a better way to convict and correct. Here's the fifth thing, to bring about godly character. And that's an overflow of convicting and, and, and correcting. As, as the Holy Spirit sort of pins us on some things, as we have those come to Jesus moments where he points something out and we respond with repentance, then all of a sudden we begin to see that godly character is now is being birthed out of our, in our hearts and in our lives. And that's the spirit who does that. We call it the fruit of the spirit. That's what Galatians calls it. And Paul in Galatians goes through this long list of the fruit of the flesh. You know, here's, 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 here's how the world lives. You know, and he talks about it. He, he talks about all, you know, idolatry and lust and covetousness and greed and anger and malice and all this stuff. That's, that's the fruit. That's the result of living by the world. But Paul says, but once you've made this shift and you've died to the world and you're living in the spirit, a new kind of fruit is being born. There's a change, right? 
Christians, followers of Jesus, should look different than non-believers. Am I right? Should, right? Often we don't, but we should. That is God's desire. That's God's heart. We should be not, not a little bit different, but radically different. Our love should be superior to the love of the world. We should love our wives in ways that make the world scratch their heads. I should. You know, we should have a hope and a joy that is just unfathomable to the world. Peace and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We should be some of the most self-controlled people on the face of the earth because we have the Spirit of God inside of us. And that's what he does. He brings about godly character. And that's the awesome thing about fruit is you can't make fruit grow. I've tried. Believe me, I've tried to get out there and like do all the stuff to, you know, make things happen on our farm and it just doesn't work. Now, there are things that I can do. I can cultivate the soil and I can fertilize and I can make sure that I'm keeping pests away and weeds away. I can do all of those things, but ultimately it's God who's got to bear these things up. Same with this kind of stuff. I can't make myself be loving. I can't make myself be full of peace and joy. I can't make myself be faithful and have self-control in all these things at all. But as I yield to the Spirit, I begin to see this, this is a natural overflow of me saying yes to the Spirit of God. He does this. He brings about godly character. And the second thing, and the sixth thing that he does, I should have had seven. That's a holy number. Chuck, think of a seventh one for me. <laughs> sixth one is this, to empower for supernatural ministry. That's what he does. And that's really, we're, we're going to look at that next week. That's kind of more of the, the manifest presence part. But it's why he's there. He's there to manifest the presence of God through me to you. He is there to come and to effect change in my circumstances. We are not meant to look around at all of our circumstances and say, boy, it'd be great if these things were different. We're not meant to just sit and say, oh boy, that sure would be great if such and such really you know, could, 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 could experience the, the healing power of Jesus. It'd be great if such and such, my, you know, my neighbor could, could really come to know the Lord in, in, in a powerful way and just wish and hope and twiddle our thumbs. The Spirit is there to manifest himself through us to, our, to the world around us and to, and, and to change the circumstances all around us. We're meant to be changers. We're meant to sort of everywhere we go, we affect change to empower for supernatural ministry. And 1 Corinthians talks about that in, in, in chapter 12. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Raise your hand if you have spiritual gifts. Megan, get your hand, get your hand up. Everybody has spiritual gifts. Everybody that lives in the Spirit has been given gifts in which to manifest the glory of God. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, why is he here? To comfort and encourage, to guarantee for sonship, our sonship, to give wisdom and revelation, to convict and correct, to bring about godly character, to empower for super, supernatural ministry. And if Chuck has a seventh one, you can ask him about it later on. All right. So, the Spirit is here in me all the time. All right, I'm going to say it again, all right, because a lot of churches don't believe this. 
The spirit, y'all say it with me. The spirit is here in me all the time. Abiding and resting. But often we don't, we don't live like this is true. We don't, um, we don't think upon it. We don't dwell upon it. We don't operate in this reality. And here's what I've, be, I've become convinced of is that we, we simply are not, we're not an aware people. We're not an aware church. We're not a conscious church. We're not conscious of the spirit being inside of us. And I'm, I, and I'm still, I'm so new to a lot of this. I've been walking with Jesus since I was 14 years old, you know, and just been sort of swimming in the, in the waters of the Holy Spirit in relatively recent years, you know. So I, I know that I'm just beginning to scratch about what this means. But I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that even in my own life, in the past, whatever, 38 years, 28 years, there are many seasons where I just wasn't aware of the abiding presence of God in my life. He was there. I know it by reading scripture. I know he was with me, but I just wasn't conscious of it. It's, it's, it's kind of like my spleen, you know, or my pituitary gland. I know I've got it, right? I couldn't stop and isolate where it is and say, oh yeah, I feel my pituitary gland up here and I feel my spleen and, you know, I'm sure glad I have one and I'm sure it's useful one day, but... Beats me, I, you could tell me I don't have one and it wouldn't feel any different to me. That's how many people are with the Spirit. We don't really abide and we're not conscious of it and awareness of it. In Acts 19, this is a great story. In Acts 19, Paul is going to the town of Ephesus. Ephesus is a, you know, sort of a non-Jewish town. It's a Gentile town. Lots of pagan gods there. Um, and let's, let's read it together. Um, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. I never heard of such a thing. Paul shows up. He's like, guys, I'm so excited that there is a family of faith here. You guys have been following the way of Yeshua. You've been following Jesus. i got to ask you, tell me, tell me all about your experience with the Holy Spirit. Have you received him yet? Right, right? And they're looking at him like, what, what in the world are you talking about? And he's like, what do you mean? The, the Holy Spirit. The, capital the, H, capital H, Spirit, capital S, Spirit. Have you received him? And they said, we didn't even know there was such a thing. I just think, you know what? Many Christians live that way too. Totally unaware of the reality that's inside of them. So here's the big idea. Is this. A church that hosts the presence has cultivated an awareness of the presence. And this is where I, this is where I feel like the Lord has been taking me in the last three or four years, maybe five years. And some of you have been here for a long, long time. Praise God for that. And some of, some of us may be thinking, I have no idea what that means. Feels touchy-feely and weird. But if we want to host the presence, we have to cultivate an awareness of the presence. 
And I mentioned Bill Johnson. He has this illustration. It's, it's, a, it's a good one, so I'm just going to steal his. He says, imagine if you had a dove that flies and lands upon your shoulder. So dove, there's the imagery. You know, Holy Spirit equals dove and all that. But imagine that a bona fide flesh and bone bird, white wings, two legs, beak, lands right here on your shoulder. And let's imagine, though, that you're just so enamored by this bird. And there's something about this bird's presence that is just gripping. And you don't want the bird to leave. Because the bird just is something awesome, you know? It's like amazing things happen. And there's this incredible sense of peace when this bird is here, right? If, if, if you were to want to keep that bird on you, wouldn't you behave in a way that wouldn't scare the bird off? Wouldn't you kind of walk carefully? You'd be, you'd be, you'd pay attention, like things in my way. Okay, I've got stairs coming up. I don't want anybody coming and screaming at me because I want this bird to stay right here. Everywhere I go would be with the awareness of this bird in mind. And he says this, and it's true. What if we were to cultivate that same kind of mentality about the presence of God? What if we could be so aware of the presence of God that everything we did was with this in mind, was with him in mind, was, was sort of with this consciousness of what the Spirit is doing? I just began to think, boy, that, that would change everything. A church that hosts a presence, we've cultivated an awareness of the presence. So how do we do that? And there are many of you that are much more qualified to talk about how you do that because you're doing it. You're living in that reality. But let me just throw out a couple ideas that I'm trying to put into practice in my own life. The first is this. Find where God is moving and dwell there. When I was in college, there was a number of these sort of big revivals that were happening. And Toronto was one up in in airport vineyard and there a few years later there was one down in, in Pensacola and I remember um, even a number of, of, of my classmates decided that they wanted to go and see this for themselves they would pack up pack bags and they would drive up to to Toronto or they would drive down to to to, to Brownsville um, and, and see the revivals that were happening there and even today you know you hear about some some of the ones we have some friends that sort of hey you know what I want to go to Bethel for to go to this place where God is going I want to soak there for a little bit or I want to go to IHOP and be there and I just I begin to think that's a heart that's hungry for the presence of God so what I'm not suggesting is that we all pack up and move it's not about geography it's about an attitude I want to be where God is moving, and I want to dwell there. Wherever God is, I want to be. What's, what's going on in the world? What's going on in my community? Where is the presence of God moving? And we can cultivate that by just intentionally being in these places where God is moving, being in these situations where we know the Spirit is at work. And the second thing is this. We can soak in an atmosphere of prayer, worship, and the Word. And that takes intentionality. Because we have a thousand other things that the enemy would rather us be doing. A thousand other shows on Netflix that he would rather us be watching. You know what I'm saying? I'm looking in the mirror. I'm talking. But what happens if we, instead of, be, instead of soaking in the things of the world, we begin to soak in the things of the Spirit? 
What if we are just in an atmosphere of worship in our homes? What if our kids are in an atmosphere of worship? What if we have worship playing, you know, whenever, whenever they come home? You know, what if oh, as we're driving, we're listening to just some, some, some powerful teaching or, or worship or things like that? What if we just have an atmosphere of prayer going on? We're soaking in that. Then that sharpens our awareness of the Holy Spirit. We're more, the more we do this, the more tuned in we are to where God's Spirit is and what He's doing. And finally, we practice listening. We practice listening and responding in faith. Practice it. Do it. Don't overthink it. I was in, I was in line. I tell the story not to look at me, but just as an example. I was in line with Cohen last week and um, buying him a happy meal. And we had just gone to a doctor or something. I had a $20 bill in my pocket. Like, I didn't have anything else. That was it, you know. And that was, I was going to get gas or something after that, out of that 20 and I bought him his Happy Meal, which was four seventy-five. And I just—I'm in line, and behind me is this older couple, you know, I don't know, late sixties, early seventies, maybe later seventies, and just—they kind of just looked like Nicholasville people, you know. They didn't have on suits or ties, but they weren't—they were just normal, you know, like any of us, just normal people. And I don't know why, but as soon as I'm checking out, I just feel like the Spirit said, "Give them your change." And 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 all of this happened in about a five second span because I didn't have a lot of time to process and argue with the Lord about it. And the, you know, the lady's you know, counting out the change. She's about to hand it back to me. And in, in a split second, I have to make up my mind, am I going to do this? When my mind says, you're probably wrong. This is probably not the Lord telling you to do this. And I have to think to myself, am I going to have this argument with my mind or am I just going to give it anyway? Even if I'm wrong, just give it anyway. What, is it, what does it matter? So I decide in that moment, done. All right, whatever. It's, it's 15 bucks left over. Who cares? So I turn around, and the guy's there, and I like walk up to him. I put the change in his hand. And I said, uh, by the way, lunch is on me today. God bless you. And I grab Cohen. I'm like walking away, you know, like this. And the guy's looking at me like, like, like what, wait, what are you doing? He's like, wait, what, what is this? I just said, the Lord told me to give it to you. Enjoy your lunch. Yeah. Right? So I go on. It's like. Whatever. So I go on and get my tea, and I'm sitting down with Cohen, and he's eating his meal. And like, they come up to us, and I hear them talking about it later on, you know, like up there. And he tells his wife, and he's like, what? What, what, what do you mean he gave you money? You know, all this other stuff. And, and he, I hear him kind of talking about it. And a few minutes later, she comes up, and she says, I just want to tell you thank you for that. Um, and she says, it was more than enough to buy our lunch, and we had some leftover, so we just paid for the person behind us. <laughs> And she says, so you just bought four meals today. Praise God. And she began to talk to me. She's like a Sunday school teacher and whatever else. So it wasn't nothing more than that. That was the end of the story. But my point is, it's just, it's just the practice of listening and responding, even if it seems small and insignificant. Because God honors faith. God's not asking us to wait until we have the voice from heaven. God is just saying, look, if you sense me, if you sense him wanting to do something, step out and do it. Practice listening. Practice sensing, okay, God, where are you? What are you saying in this situation? You know, what do you, where do you want me to be about today? You know, and I, I, even, I even knew of a guy, you know, I met him a couple years ago, and he would go so far as to sit in a chair, and he would just wait for God to tell him to stand up. He'd stand up. God would, he would sense God was saying, walk around in circles, and he'd walk around in circles. It seemed a little weird to me, okay, but I walked away going, okay, well, that's a guy who's really serious about hearing what God's saying and doing it. 
Can't fault the guy for that. Even if he's walking around in circles and sitting up and standing down and sitting up and sitting down, it kind of looks goofy, but who am I? He's got a heart that wants to do what God is saying to do. He's cultivating, he's practicing it. So an awareness of the spirit is something that can be nurtured and cultivated. We don't just say, God, make me more aware of your presence, and we wait for the Shekinah glory to fall on us and knock us over. God is saying, get up in the morning. Ask for my presence. Listen for my presence. Make notes. Stick them up on your window. Put a reminder on your phone. Practice being in the presence of God. Washing dishes, changing diapers, folding clothes, driving bread trucks. Whatever it is, practice being in the presence of God. Train yourself to become conscious of God all the time. And as we do that, as we cultivate, Brian, come on up if you would. As we cultivate awareness of the presence, we're just going to find that it just overflows just like it did today. This is, this is it, y'all. This is overflow. This is just when, this, when the, the abiding presence is so real in your heart and in my heart that it just bubbles up and it comes out. And all of a sudden, it, goes from a, it shifts from an abiding presence to a manifest presence. And we're going to talk about that next week. What does that look like? What does it look like when we begin to manifest the presence of God, right? All right.